series is called Guilty as Charged. And when we take a look at Romans chapter 3, that's exactly what we come away with. Guilty verdicts for each and every one of us, no exceptions. Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse is next. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Welcome to our program. We're back in Romans chapter 3, message called Guilty as Charged. As you find Romans 3, I'd like to remind you that this coming Friday will mark two years since Pastor Saeed Abedini has been imprisoned in the notorious Evan and Rajiv Shar prison inside of Iran because of his Christian faith. And we're inviting you to gather with us this coming Friday as we, together with other Christians across the world, pray for the release of Pastor Syed. That's at 6 p.m. at Grace Bible Church. I'll tell you more at the close of the program. But for now, let's catch up with Pastor Steve Converse for today's program. You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're taking our time as we're going through this section of Scripture because there's so much in this that we don't want to miss anything and we definitely don't want to misunderstand anything. Inevitably, when I've dealt with this text over the years in ministry, um, after studying it or having a Bible study on it or preaching a sermon on it, inevitably people come back to the question of the matter of the human will and its freedom or its bondage. And... uh, I've said before, if we're so desperately lost, as we see here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 320, he constantly is beating that drum. You're lost in your sin. You're lost in your sin. You're not righteous. You don't have a righteousness of your own. If that's the truth, which we believe the Word of God says, and it is, then unaided by the Spirit of God, no one can come to God. No one can choose God. No one can even believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. No one. Unless, unless God first makes that person alive in Christ and draws him or her to himself. That is something that maybe you're hearing for the first time, maybe you're not. If you've been here for any amount of time, you, that's not the first time you've heard that. But it troubles many Christians, that truth that we just stated. Uh, it doesn't seem consistent with what they or even we know about our own ability to choose what they wanted to choose or reject what they wanted to reject. Um, What's more important is when you look into Scripture, it seems inconsistent with the many free offers of the gospel that we find throughout the New Testament. What does the Bible mean when it says in Ephesians 2.1 that we are dead in our transgressions and our sins? What does that mean? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Does that mean that somehow we're really unable to respond to God in any way, even when the gospel is proclaimed to us? Or do we still have a little bit of ability left? Can, if, if we respond, if we can respond, what did Jesus mean 
when he said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me, what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in Romans, or John 6, 65, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. On the other hand, the debate goes, if we can't respond, then what is the meaning of those passages in Scripture where we find the gospel is offered to fallen men and women? What do we do with them? For example, Isaiah 55.1, where the Lord himself, through the prophet Isaiah, says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. What about those kind of invitations? Furthermore, how can a person be held responsible for failing to believe in Jesus if he or she is unable to do so? See the tension? Well, these questions come to us in vivid color in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20. Last week, we looked at basically verses 10 and 11 of Romans 3. And to sum up Paul's condition his assessment of man's condition, which is God's assessment because he's using God's word to do so. He's already used creation. He's already used logic. And basically, he's condemned everybody on the planet. Everybody's sinful. So in verse 10, he's kind of summing this up. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. He put that in there just so you couldn't say, well, wait, wait, wait. I'm pretty good. No, no, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. See, the way you interpret this verse has a lot to do with how you regard man's rock-bottom inability, or depending on your theological view, ability, where spiritual things are concerned. This is not a debate, beloved, that was just born yesterday. This has been around for years, since the inception of the church. The best way to approach the subject is through the debates that have already taken place, I believe. The first important debate in history, and this is just kind of introduction for us here today, was between Pelagius and St. Augustine toward the end of the 4th and the beginning of the 5th century. That just gives you a little idea of how far back this goes. Pelagius was arguing for free will. He did not want to deny the universality of sin, at least at the beginning of his argument, He knew that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He understood that. Romans 3.23, we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks. And in that sense, he wanted to remain orthodox to the Scriptures. But Pelagius could not see how we can be held responsible for something if we don't have the free will in the matter. Logical conclusion, right? Kind of makes sense. If there is an obligation to do something, there must be an ability to do it. That's what his argument was. And Pelagius believed that the, the will, rather than being bound by sin, which is what the Scripture says, and we'll look at that, he believed it's actually neutral. So that any moment or in any given situation, it is free to choose either good or evil. That's what he believed. And it worked, it's fleshed its way out in, in a lot of different ways in theology back then. For one, it led to a view of sin as only those deliberate and unrelated acts in which the will actually chooses to do evil. So if you do something that's sinful, but you didn't really choose to do it, then it's not sin. And any necessary connection between sins 
And the hereditary principle of sin within the race was simply thrown out. It was forgotten. He argued the sin of Adam affected no one but himself. That's what he said. Number two, he argued that both since Adam have been born, those born since Adam have been born into the same condition Adam was in before his fall. That is, into a position of neutrality so far as sin is concerned. And then he also argued, thirdly, that human beings are able to live free from sin if they want to. I have some issues. The scripture has some issues with those statements. But unfortunately, that's probably the view of most people today, including many Christians in our society. But it's faulty because it limits the nature and the scope of sin and because it leads to a denial of the necessity of the unmerited Grace of God in salvation. And we're going to explain that to you this morning. Even when the gospel is preached to a fallen sinner, according to his view, what ultimately determines whether he or she will be saved is not the supernatural working of God through the Holy Spirit, but rather the person's will, which either receives or rejects the Savior. And this gives human beings glory that only ought to go to God. In his early life, Augustine basically believed the same thing. But when he became a Christian, and as he began to study the scriptures diligently, he came to see that the views of his fellow theologian didn't do justice to either biblical doctrine, the doctrine of sin, or the grace of God in salvation. Augustine saw that the Bible always speaks of sin as more than mere isolated and individual acts. It speaks of an inherited depravity as a result of which it is simply not possible for the individual to stop sinning. He actually coined a phrase, non posse non, it means not able not to sin. You're not able not to sin, which means unaided by God, a person is just not able to stop sinning and choose the Lord. Augustine said that... uh, that man having used his free will, will will badly in the fall, lost both himself and his will. Having used his free will badly in the fall, lost both having himself and his will. He said that the will is free of righteousness, but it's enslaved to sin. It is free to turn from God, but not to come to God. As far as grace is concerned, Augustine saw that apart from grace, no one can be saved. That's what the Bible teaches us. And moreover, he taught that the matter of grace from beginning to end, it's not just uh, partial grace, which kind of you add to the sinner's efforts and then somehow they both work together and you end up with salvation. Because if you believe that, then you'd have to say that salvation is not entirely of God and God's honor would be diminished Human beings would be able to boast in heaven one day. How'd you get here? I chose God. I did this. I did that. It's very clear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By the way, we we have that, I think it's that scripture, on our playground. Engraved in the, the one panel. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. 
And eventually, Augustine's view prevailed early on in church history. The church supported his view. They saw the scriptures lined up with his view. But unfortunately, Christianity gradually, over the years, have drifted back to the direction of Pelagianism. And and during the Middle Ages is when that all started. So you have at the time of the Reformation, the battle erupted once again between Martin Luther and a Dutch humanist, Erasmus of Rotterdam. And then another debate arose between Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. That's where we get Calvinism and Arminianism from. And so when you stop and you you think of this, this is not something that just popped onto the scene yesterday. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to understand that they, they've had wars over the years. One, one wrote the, the bondage of the will. Luther did. And, you know, it, it's, it's important to, to, to see that, that aspect. And, and the other guy, you know, wrote a, the bondage of sin. <laughs> and they just had this back and forth. And we have that going on today. But it's irrelevant, really, what all these debates are about and everything. What does the Scripture say? And that's what we're here for this morning. And so we've been looking at Romans chapter 3, and we've been looking beginning in verse 9. And I just want to read our text for us. I'll read down to verse 20. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have all ready charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does 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 good not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive their venom of the venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Last week, we looked just quickly at the question. He starts right off there in, in verse 9 in way of review, and Paul's basically saying, okay, what's, he's asking these rhetorical questions. He's saying, okay, you've heard my argument. Everybody's condemned, and now his hearers are saying, okay, well, if that's true, Paul, what do we do about it? What's, help us understand this situation. What's the conclusion to all this? And that's what he says. In verse 9, what then? And then we talked about, are we any better off? And we talked about, and you can get this last week, some translations say, are we Jews? Putting Paul in with the Jews. I believe it should read, are we any better off? Referring to those believers in Rome. I think he was talking about the Christians. Just because he knew our human nature. He knew that sometimes Christians can get a little haughty, can get a little self-righteous, can get feeling pretty good about themselves. And he had already dismissed the Gentiles. He had already dismissed the Jews. Why would he do it again here? It doesn't make sense. So I think he's speaking of Christians. Are we Christians any better off in our nature? Are we a better person than them? Is that why we're Christians? That's the question he's asking. And his answer is no, no way. 
Absolutely not. He wants us to understand that. That just because you've been saved by the grace of God and Christ's work for you on Calvary doesn't make you any better than the guy across the street or the neighbor down the street or whoever it may be who hasn't put their faith and trust in Christ yet. And the only reason I know that is because God said, hey, I didn't pick you because of your whatever, fill in the blank, your good looks, your talents, your gifts, your intellect. He didn't pick us because of that. No, it says he picked the foolish things. He chose the foolish things of this earth so that he may get all the glory. And then he says, we have already charged. We have already charged. It's a legal term. It's indicting a person for a giving, given offense. He says, we're already charged that everybody, Jews, Greeks, everybody, that, that's everybody, is under sin. There's not one person that's not under sin. Well, what about the Pope? The Pope's under sin. Everybody is under sin. It means to be under the power of, the control of, the dominion of, the authority of. That's the idea. Well, basically, we got down to where it says, as it is written, and referred to that, and we said, you know what, it's interesting because it's written in the perfect tense, and it's referring to the Old Testament, and right here, he begins to quote the Psalms. He begins to quote Psalm 14. He begins to quote Psalm 53. He begins to quote from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 20. And so Paul's saying, look, I've given you a lot of information that you're condemned. You have no righteousness or whatever. But now I'm going to give you the ultimate source. It's God himself. I'm quoting from God's word as it is written. And the perfect tense means that it was written some time ago, but it continues. The results continue. Nothing changes with that statement. So what we're going to read applies today just as it did back then. And he begins here in in verse 9 of chapter 3. The apostle summarizes the condition of every human heart as being apart from the grace of God in Christ. That's not a pretty picture. We don't like to see that. According to Paul, Jews are not better than Gentiles, and Gentiles are not better than Jews, and Christians are not better than anybody. Everybody, everybody is under sin. And so he says there in verse 10, none is what? Righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. No one seeks for God. We talked last week, and we just mentioned this at the end of the service. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity is hard for the human race to accept. Because we like to think that there's something good about us. Because our comparison is not to God, it's to two other human beings. Now, most people are willing to admit that they're not perfect. I mean, I don't think anybody here this morning would say, oh, I'm perfect, Pastor. No, nobody would say that. That would be arrogant. That would be prideful. But you know what? We do, within ourselves, feel that somehow we have a natural ability to please God. We're willing to admit that we're not perfect, but not that we're not righteous. We're willing to admit that there are things not known to us, but not that we are devoid of all spiritual understanding. We're willing to admit that, you know, yeah, basically we have sin, but we're not totally depraved. See, instead of admitting that we are running away from God in our fallen state, we pretend that somehow we're seeking him. 
And we have to come to terms with this bad tendency to run away from what the truth of the Word of God says to us. Because without an accurate knowledge, listen, of our own sin, we will never come to know the meaning of God's grace. If we don't have an accurate knowledge of our own sin, our own fallenness, our own sinfulness, we will never come to understand the meaning of God's grace. Without an awareness of our pride, we'll never be able to appreciate God's greatness. Nor will we come to God for healing or anything else we might desperately need. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like being sick physically. You know, some of you have been sick, had some issues with my neck and didn't go away. So what I did, I went to a doctor. Doctor sent me to a therapist. He puts me in this device and stretches my, am I taller at all? I was wondering, does this make me taller? He's stretching me out every week. I don't know if it's going to work or not. It doesn't feel like it, but we'll go for a couple weeks and see what happens. See, as long as we are convinced, or at least sort of convinced that we're well, right, in our physical state, are you going to go to the doctor? Probably not. Usually not. Even chiropractors have that complaint with people. And the only time they come with this is when something's hurting. They need to come, right? They need to come and get cracked and do all this. There's maintenance because then you won't have all these issues. That's their mentality. But we don't go to a doctor if we're not feeling pain or we're not, we're not sick. That would be kind of silly. But if we know that we are spiritually sick, we'll turn to that great physician, Jesus Christ, who him alone is able to heal us. But it's, it's, you know what? That illustration is kind of bad because it's really worse than that. <laughs> the scripture says it's really worse than that. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Because I, I just use the illustration of being sick. See, the, the Bible doesn't use those terms. The Bible doesn't call us sick. <laughs> you know what it calls us? Dead. We're not sick. We're dead. I mean, there's a big difference there. Would you, would you say so? I mean, you know, you go to see the hospital, somebody to see somebody in the hospital and they're sick. You know, you go in and if you go in there and the bed's empty and the doctor goes, oh, no, they're dead. Big difference, right? I mean, you're not going to, your, your prayers are going to change a little bit. You're going to be thinking, well, how can I minister to the family and everything? You know, that guy's dead. I mean, they're, they're gone. They're, they're where they're going to be. You wouldn't say, well, wait a minute. Don't call the doctor back in. You know, give him something else. No, he's dead. The person's dead. There's nothing nobody can do. That's how Scripture describes us. As long as someone is merely sick, listen to this, the situation is not hopeless. There's always hope. You can be really, 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 really sick. But you know what? With today's medicine, today's doctors, and all the technology and research, there, there might be a chance. Yeah, the odds may be against you, but still, there, there could be a chance. And we've all heard stories of people that have, have broken through the odds and come out and, boy, they live a, a wonderful life today. And yet, they were on death's door one day. And even the doctors thought, boy, nothing, we can't do anything. But somehow, they came through it. So there's always hope, as long as you're, you're just sick. <laughs> Maybe they'll get better. Maybe they'll survive. But see, according to these verses and others, apart from the grace of God, a person is not just spiritually sick, they're dead. They're dead. And that's the uniqueness of the Bible's teaching. And with that, we come to the end of our time today here on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. And it is our prayer 
here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area, and if not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., and we offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up through grade 5. If you'd like to encourage us here at the Graceful Truth Program, give us a call at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. Or visit us on the web at gracebibleonline.org. Now, we also have one other event that we would love to have you join us for. It's coming up this coming Friday, September 26th, 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, 2225 Euclid Avenue. September 26th, this coming Friday, marks two years since Pastor Saeed Abedini has been imprisoned in Iran because of his Christian faith. And we're inviting you to gather with us as we join together across the world with other Christians to pray for the release of Pastor Saeed. Again, that's this Friday, 6 p.m. to 7.30 at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. For more information, call us at 650-366-9923 or go online, gracebibleonline.org. That's gracebibleonline.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you not only this coming Friday for this prayer vigil for Pastor Saeed Abedini, but next Sunday as well, as we continue our series through Romans, here on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. 